Hello and welcome to episode number 202, Armin Show Podcast. We are in the place with author from book Elephant in Brain, Dr. Robin Hansen. Welcome to Great the show. Great to be here. This is wonderful. Now, uh, The Elephant in the Brain, I discussed this book on episodes 87, 90, 92, and 93. For anybody who wants to check those, a wonderful book about the hidden motives behind what people do. I may link to some parts of that uh, in this episode as well. And... Uh, a few people ended up reading that book after I had that episode, so it's kind of cool to share that with other individuals. How has been the experience with having that book out there, and did you like what you got back as feedback, and are you using that for a potential future book? Well, uh, I like the fact that, like you and others, uh, a lot of people read the book, understood it, and uh, mm-hmm. took it to heart. Right. Um, it hasn't really gotten much in the way of academic reaction mm-hmm. so academia has mostly ignored it right it, it got a little media attention uh, in some you know newspaper sort of things mm-hmm. uh, but it's pointing that uh, academics don't uh, want to engage it they didn't really look at it in detail <laughs> well it's uh, not something that forces them to in the sense uh, so um like my colleague brian kaplan uh, has a book on education, and because that's focused on education, many education specialists figure that uh, they ought to respond, that it's in their area. Mm-hmm. And we have a chapter on education in our book, but our book is broader than that. Right. And so, uh, because it only has a chapter in education, an education researcher wouldn't think they'd have to respond to it, and the medical researcher doesn't think they have to respond if there's only a chapter on medicine. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, it's not in any of those people's bailiwick. Mm-hmm. Now, it's based on a basic psychology uh perspective and psychologists have said yeah yeah we know that this is well known this isn't new right. which of course we agree with uh, right. we are emphasizing the application to these other areas but uh, there's no one uh, group that thinks it's their job to react to um, to the scope of uh, having hidden motives across a wide range of areas that makes sense it has to ping that direct group for them to suddenly be like okay we'll take advantage of this Right. And the problem is if you just have a book, say, on education, uh, then however persuasive your argument is, people in their minds go, well, this sure looks like an exception to all the other things we know about in life. Everything else we think is, is straightforward. And this you're saying is weird. So right. we just hard to believe. Right. And we think there's evidential support in showing that, no, no, lots of things are weird. Right. And, and that should make you believe that any one of them is weird in this direction. Right. Uh, that's what our book tries to do is to kind of convince you that we have it all over the place. And that's why it's more plausible for you to believe it in any one place. Mm-hmm. But again, there's no particular academic group out there who sees that as their job right. to uh, talk about human behavior overall in terms of hidden motives. Again, there's lots of people who in the abstract will agree that hidden motives are, are perfectly plausible. When you get to something specific, like say education or medicine or politics, oh. then people switch into the usual motive. Well, of course the usual claim about motive is right. Oh, you know, everything else is kind of crazy. Not our group. Yeah. Uh, right. If there's hidden motives, it's out there somewhere else. Right. Distant. Something else. Mm-hmm. Now, I would like to include in as a description, you're doing professorship of economics at George Mason University. You are part of the Future of Humanity Institute at Oxford University with research. Uh, your doctorate is from Caltech. You also have degrees in physics and philosophy with master's degrees from University of Chicago. And you also worked as a research programmer at Lockheed and NASA, which... Which would you identify more, uh, identify with more, the academic realm or the research programming at Lockheed and NASA? Well, I mean, I, I probably identify more at the meta level of sub, as somebody who doesn't identify so much right. with a particular area. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, once you've done several areas, then you are less a person from one particular area and more one of us people who can cross whenever we need to. Right. Uh, so, so most people, you know, have a sense for what their discipline is, and, and they pick a topic within that discipline. Right. And if they're investigating that and it goes across the boundary, they go, "Well, that must be somebody else's job." So, I guess I'll stop there and go into something else. Because <laughs> <laughs> <Right. laughs> that's not my job to go across that boundary. Right. Uh, and the more that you just do lots of subjects you more ask well what are the missing topics that are between all these subjects what are the neglected topics? what are the ones that you need to go across multiple areas to uh, study right i've noticed that theme at the I, i'm guessing the future of humanity institute as well i think i've connected with that a little bit and then also the santa fe institute uh, i had a few individuals i spoke to and they are also multi-faceted so there's less of a i'm a this so less of a limitation and then right now, of course, the problem is that um, many people see this as, as an opportunity to get away with uh, sloppiness, basically. Right. So, uh, you know, within work well within a discipline, then the people in that discipline will hold you to the high disciplinary standards. And then work that's sort of between the disciplines and neglected, well, many people notice, well, if I claim to be doing something there, then um, it's hard for other people to criticize me. Mm-hmm. And the standards are lower, so I can get away with that. And a lot of people do try to get away with pretty sloppy thinking and work by claiming that it's between the disciplines and therefore uh, neglected. So um, the hard thing then is to still hold yourself to high standards and to try to get people to evaluate your work uh, from multiple disciplines. Right. One thing that connects with this, there's a neuroscientist, David Eagleman. He had a quote I posted recently, but he said that the the process of becoming a person means pruning back a lot of the brain's uh, connections, I believe it was. So, like, to be in some sort of category, you have to cut out all the little extended axons or whatnot, and now you are more in this, but then you're not able to handle variety later on like a child would, and then... Right. I mean, so that's the general trajectory of humans from you know fluid intelligence when young flexibility and ability to learn to crystallize knowledge being knowledgeable and and understanding and being able to do a lot but less able to learn later on Mm -hmm. this is true there's a connection there um and i have noticed uh and you have a blog overcoming bias uh it's your website and articles from before i used to write articles in 2008 9 10 11 but uh, uh, definitely from then since now across the board and when I read it I see a lot of similarity in not only um, some elements of what you're saying but also in the feedback that you're getting sometimes when I've said similar things I get similar feedback um, from presenting things that are they're just my view but to the other person it's what you have described as a view quake which is uh, shock factor or how could this be or that's too different and then you get responses that they're somewhat extreme and they kind of seem to miss the point right so a, a general you know concept of information is uh you know something that you didn't know mm-hmm. uh, but it's also something you wouldn't have expected that right. is um often research produces results that literally wasn't known but was pretty strongly expected Mm-hmm. And in, in an information sense, you haven't learned very much if what you've confirmed is something you thought was pretty likely to be true. Mm-hmm. So uh, in terms of uh, the, the amount of information, the more surprising a result is, the more you've learned. And so that's why I tried to focus on learning and producing surprising 
information. Um, now, of course, if you hold yourself a standard, right, <laughs> in terms of quality, it's it's easy to produce surprising things. Um, easier in the sense that you just find whatever people wouldn't expect, and you claim to have shown that, right. <laughs> it's like a shock uh, so, factor thing, yeah. <laughs> right. So it's easy to be shocking uh, if you hold yourself, you know, to high standards of, of mm-hmm. actually producing persuasive evidence or arguments. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the the hard part then is to try to be looking for surprising things while still, you know, right. not believing things unless there's a good reason. Maintaining a higher standard. Now, uh, before we get into some of the articles there, uh, I wanted to check. Um, are there certain kinds of individuals or groups you have resonated with the most? Even though I, I know you said you're not a joiner, is there any like personality traits where you're like, okay, this uh, I, I get along with better maybe or similar? Well, I, cer- I certainly get along with people who are willing to go across the disciplinary boundaries. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll get along better with people who are just willing to be analytic and willing to be mathematical but not you know, being obsessed with only ever doing things that are mathematical. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm somewhat, I guess you might cost call on the spectrum or, uh, analytical systematizing person. Uh, mm-hmm. and so I, I'm certainly more comfortable with people who will just take any topic and just have their first reaction to be to analyze it and then wait a bit until you want to be moralistic or normative about it. Right. And then, and then there's lots of other people, even the majority for whom, uh, once there's some sort of moral color to a topic, that's the overwhelming priority for them is to position themselves in some sort of correct position relative to the topic. Mm-hmm. After the fact. Well, just it, before analysis. Right. Just as soon as you notice the topic is touching on X, which X is a sensitive moral topic, then you then you are just sure to position yourself as I'm pro X or anti X or mm-hmm. I have this position. And you're not very interested in analyzing the topic, i.e. collecting the evidence, wondering what the patterns are, wondering what the puzzles are, etc. Right. Um, and so I'm much more... I first want to analyze. Now, in analyzing, do you have a good sense of pattern recognition? Like, for example, I want to point out also, you are a pioneer in prediction markets, which I actually looked up to check. I didn't know about them much. And then you can bet on or put on things, any possible thing that could occur based on uh, how likely it is or in your view. And since 1988, which is quite interesting, and... Do you have a sense, um, like do you have a pat- pattern recognition sense of things like when you saw Bitcoin or I don't know, other things that are happening in financial or public that you're like, wait a minute, I see the trend. I've seen this before. Well, of course, the more you live and the more you know, the more subtle your ability to match new things onto old things becomes. Mm-hmm. Right. And then, um, you know, a mature sophisticated person is just going to no longer follow the simple patterns. I mean, you know, the, the, the two simplest patterns are one to reject everything new, right? To, uh, to say that, you know, there's just the high standards of things that have been proven by science or, you know, experts. And then there's all this noise of other people saying other things and rejecting all that noise relative to the solid expertise. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's one sort of standard. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and then there's a lot of usefulness for that sort of stance. And another sort of contrarian to that standard is to embrace every new thing that claims that it's being rejected right. by the establishment, and it's got a new revolutionary way everything's going to change and uh, exciting potentials. Uh, and there, there are some many people who just embrace pretty much every 
you know, thing that presents as, as a new revolutionary change mm-hmm. uh, in defiance of some established authority. Right. And that's also pretty naive. Right. And, and if you're going to pick one of the two, I sh- you should pick the first over the second. It's more stable. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because at least if you limit yourself to the things the experts are pretty sure they know, you're limiting yourself to stuff that's mostly true. Right. Whereas right. the stuff that's mostly, <laughs> uh, you know, revolutionary reaction wow. and overturning things is mostly wrong. Right. So There's a lot um, of risk in it. Yeah. Actually, I, so I have a, a side little point that I, I make about medicine, which is um, mm-hmm. I notice that um, uh, small hospitals have some disadvantages relative to big, big hospitals. Big hospitals tend to uh, do new procedures first to have more experts they tend to do any procedure more mm-hmm. and uh, all else equal if, if you do a procedure more you're, you're just better at it right uh, nevertheless uh, small hospitals have about the same mortality rate as big hospitals huh. and so the question is how can you make sense of big hospitals seeming to have these advantages over small ones but small ones um, on the overall right. being about as good and the solution is to say well it's not good to do the newest procedures most new procedures are bad. So innovation in general is a bunch of new stuff, most of which was going to go away. Mm-hmm. And, and the, the, the net effect and gain of innovation is the few new things that will stay and last, but right. most new things last. So if you go to the big hospital and have them new, do the new procedures on you, that's, that's a loss. Right. Uh, and so actually your best selfish strategy is to go to the, new, to the big hospital and say, this thing you're recommending that they do, do they do this at small hospitals too? And if they say, oh no, they couldn't do that, only we can do it. And oh. you say, no, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take the things that they also do at the small hospitals right. that you also do here, because, but you do them better because you do more of them. Right. We want to take your experience, uh, but we don't want so much novelty. Uh, we want something that's more done now, for the, for the world's benefit, of course, somebody has to try new things. Right. The uh, pioneers. So it's fine there, there to be some subsidy or encouragement for people to do new things, but, uh, you know, you should be aware that most particular new things are not so good. Right. It's sort of like the something cowboys over the hill and often gets shot with arrows, but somebody had to run over the hill to do right. that. And... Right. So obviously a lot of incitement is around the new things that will make a difference. And so a lot of the, the whole game is to look at all the different things people are talking about as, as new, exciting things and ask which of these things really have a substantial potential to be a big, important new thing. Mm-hmm. And there's, after a while, you learn a lot of heuristics about easy ways to dismiss a lot of claim to be new things. And so uh, you can just go, no, 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 I'm not going with that. <laughs> say, that, that that's just not plausible. So. Right. You know, we, I'm happy to talk to you about any one current proposed new thing and, and the apparent you know, indicators that I could identify uh, if you'd like. But uh, you know, the thing you learn after a while is to be picky right. about which new things to be excited about. Yes. Well, actually, uh, uh, in relative to new things, there was uh, CES recently. There was a lot of uh, – there was like a list of 14 things that are the new items of the next decade. And – uh, do you, well, yes. So like artificial intelligence or augmented reality and virtual reality, these things are on the way. They all follow the same trajectory. Previous things. Uh, do you have any views about some of the current technological advances, uh, 3d printing, any of those? I've got views on, on most of the ones right, I've heard right. about. <laughs> like, uh, you know, uh, mo- most of them are just coming much more slowly right. and more limited than, uh, you know, you might be led to believe by the hype. Right. Not not that they won't have any you know matter, but um, 
they'll probably be a lot smaller. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, it's a matter of which things will stand out from that. Right. Uh, so, for example, people have been talking about virtual reality for a long time. Right. And the potential there, and, and clearly, eventually, there's a potential, but the question is, well, how close are we to realizing that potential? Right. Like and it's... so, uh, you know, people say, well, someday, you know, virtual reality will be so good that it'll be just like being there. Right. The, the resolution will be so great that uh, it will be just like you were there. Mm-hmm. And yes, that will be true someday. But today's resolution is not really remotely close to that. Right. It's pretty obvious if you put one on. Right. You are not at, you know, full life level resolution. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, I'm, I'm not really that excited about uh, virtual reality inter- for things other than games mm-hmm. uh, because I'm just not seeing it. Even similarly for movies, I mean, you know, we, we had this uh, episode of Black Mirror recently, which was like a Bender's Natch or something like that, which mm-hmm. was basically a choose-your-adventure sort of scenario. I heard about that. And, you know, this has been an old point that people tried these long ago, is people mostly don't want to choose their own adventure. Right. They they want a story to follow, right? And oh. uh, and for movies, uh, you know, trying to make a a virtual reality movie is, is just a lot harder in the sense that not only do you pick the center of attention where the camera is, but now you have to pick like the rest, everything else anywhere else could turn their head and explore, mm-hmm. and you have to let in with something interesting, right? Which gets a lot harder, right? So, you know, and usually in games, what you have is is just some main path, and and you can wander away from it to some modest degree. But if you get too far away, then they start increasing the pressure to push you back onto the main path. Mm-hmm. That's because true. Because it's really hard to design a thoughtful, you know, storyline and, and scenario that you where you can go anywhere you you want. Right, open world and everything. Yeah, that's true. Now, um, two things came to mind there. One of them, uh, story. You had an article called stories are like religion and i have noticed this that uh stories are used to represent like this was a good time or this was a this and many people would like to stick to a it's it's more comfortable but it's limiting because it's it was that moment a story is just attached to that moment you mean a moment in in a, in, a, in our history or mm-hmm. kind of like if there's a story of this person did it and it's great, but then ten years later, uh, it's still great. But they did it ten years ago. It's maybe it's not as applicable to today. And then it becomes kind of like a religion. Uh, I noticed that in that one article. It's from 2012. Right. So, um, I mean, stories are one of the classic examples of a weird thing humans do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that you know we don't see other animals doing. Right. And so it, it raises the obvious question: well, Why are humans doing this? Because humans evolved through the same sort of evolutionary pressures other animals did. Mm-hmm. And so this thing has to be useful somehow, uh, but it's not on the face of it very useful. Mm-hmm. And now some people do like to tell stories uh, of the form, well, um, you know, if, if I go experience something and you don't experience it, but I can tell you the story of it, then I can transfer to you the experience I had. Mm-hmm. And then if, if I see an unusual experience or at least think of it and and it's an extreme unusual scenario but that's really important unusual scenario then through stories i could transfer you to some experience about what you know what happens in very extreme unlike it which is all true Uh, but the vast majority of stories we actually consume really can't be understood very well in these terms Mm -hmm. uh clearly uh you know if we were mainly telling stories for the purpose of you know showing people uh, typical or especially important situations, then we would just be telling a whole range of different stories than the stories we actually tell. Right. Uh, so, 
uh, other plausible functions of storytelling are to, um, you know, bond with each other and, and show off our attitudes and our sensibilities. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is, uh, when a story has a moral, mm-hmm. uh, then uh, you can like the moral and like the story because you like the moral. Or if a story has a character with a certain style, you can know you like that style and you approve of that style by liking that character with that style. Right. And therefore, we can use stories as a way to, um, you know, group together and, and show that we share each other's values and allegiances to these attitudes and things. And then this makes a lot of sense. And of course, it's a source for why people then fight over stories and disagree about stories. Mm-hmm. And it's a source of cultural conflict because people are trying to push culture in a direction by pushing its stories in a direction and arguing that some characters are good and some are bad and some stories and some are bad. Right. I, I've i noticed that, well, this relates to, uh, you know, a previous episode I talked with uh, Dr. Daniel Lieberman, he's a psychiatrist, and he, his book had talked about uh, dopamine and the here and now neurotransmitters, like the two sides. And on the one side, there's a lot of affiliative relationships, which are like hanging out, maybe talking about a story, but they're not purpose-driven. And a lot of individuals use that to relate and just be calm, but they don't have a real purpose. This is our team and we are here kind of thing. And then one other thing I noted, you had mentioned Black Mirror. Sometimes I think about Black Mirror like it is uh, translating some of the more complicated or up-and-coming technologies or changes that are coming into a more story-like way so that uh, people are able to absorb it. Do you feel like that? Well, I mean, w- once once you know that we have this capacity and taste for stories, mm-hmm. then when you have a purpose to communicate somebody, then right. to somebody, then you might think, oh, if I could embed this in a story, then people can understand it better. Mm-hmm. And that's certainly true. I mean, you know, but it's probably not the main reason stories exist. Right. Right. I mean, they're, they're there for another reason, but as long right. as they're, they're there, then it can be useful to, um, but of course, because people are not using stories mainly for this purpose, uh, when you try to achieve this purpose in stories, you'll have to compromise a lot. Right. Uh, that is, you can't just make the story tell whatever you want to say. You'll also have to make it entertaining and, and you know, compelling, et cetera, and the way that people want stories to be. Right. So, for example, Black Mirror uh, does, in some sense, describe some technical possibilities. Mm-hmm. And by watching it, you could learn of some of those technical possibilities. But mm-hmm. since most people watching Black Mirror want it to be a compelling story, right. and in particular, <laughs> they want it to be a um, moral story, morality tale right most people most stories to be morality tales right uh then basically what they have to do is find some morality tale related to these technologies and mm-hmm. usually it's in, of the form the worst thing that could happen. <laughs> right what's so basically you know, people writing these stories facing what's the worst thing we can imagine happening with this technology mm-hmm. especially the worst morality thing so not just a thing that could happen right but Thing that could happen that we could blame on someone mm-hmm. or somebody would be culpable for that worst thing happening that bad that's person you really want mm-hmm. uh then um then that derives most of these stories right so they're not at all descriptions of typical scenarios with these technologies they're worst cases right yeah to get a which might put, push people away from the technologies of course i mean right. it does make sense when you're thinking about anything to think about worst cases but if you mainly think about worst cases you'll mainly decide it's not worth doing right and of course there's a long history of science fiction movies etc uh focused on basically worst cases of things that could happen mm-hmm. i think it comes from related to like the loss aversion concept or uh the fear that is in many they're like change. well most morality is about 
bad things. Right. <laughs> just to be clear. They ping harder. Right. I mean, when if somebody does a good thing, we have some sense that she's morally rewarded, but it's pretty weak. And right. We don't, you know, and if we somebody fails to reward somebody who does a good thing, we mostly don't think of them as an evil person. Right. They can be thoughtless or, you know, selfish even, but they're not terrible evil. We reserve terrible evil for people who cause bad things to happen. Right. So uh, most morality is focused on bad things. Therefore, morality tales will be mostly focused on bad things. That's true. Now, that's true, huh? You're actually funny. Um, in your most recent article, you have said, have a thing, which is something I am very about. Having a thing is what you like to be around. I like to be around that. Uh, what comes to mind in relation to that? Because I note this heavily. Well, it's a small fraction of people who are willing to do it. Right. So um, clearly, you know, there are some personality style things that are interacting with this. So my recommendation is obviously implicit that if you are the sort of person who might be willing to have a thing, mm -hmm. then um, give it a consideration. Since our, our listeners maybe have not read this post. Right. The idea is that a person who has a thing, uh, they've got a topic. So if you meet them in conversation and there's some, you know, space in the conversation, they might well pitch their thing. Mm -hmm. They claim and they're going to argue for it. And they've done this a bit. And so this means if you talk to such a person, they will initiate, hey, let me try to convince you of something. Mm -hmm. And they will have thought about this a bit and they will know a fair bit of details and they will be open to cross-examination and criticism. They'll be willing to get into it. Right. And uh, if you talk to a person like that and they're reasonably smart and, and re you know, careful, then um, you might well be persuaded by this, which is great because usually they claim it's important and then you'd be persuaded about something important you didn't know about. Mm -hmm. Or, of course, they could be wrong right. and you could know why they're wrong and you could persuade them of that and then you could change their life. And right. they're the sort of person who when you, you know, there's a relationship between what they believe and what they do. And that's not actually true for a lot of people. Right. A lot of people just like to talk about things, but it doesn't really have much to do with what they do with their life. There's a disconnect. Uh, but the person with the thing is a person who is claiming, at least, and often does, like, I'm doing this thing because I believe this thing. Mm -hmm. And if you can convince me not to believe this, then I'll stop doing this. Mm -hmm. So you have the potential to, um, you know, convince them. And then even if, you know, it's not even clear, but... Uh, you're talking about something concrete and you can learn a fair bit about something concrete from them and teach them something even if you never agree on who's right or wrong. And uh, you're you're talking about something potentially important. Right. And in the talking, they learn a lot about like how careful they are, how thoughtful they are, what, how, what standards of evidence they use, um, you know, things like that. And just you could much more quickly learn about them than you might through uh, small talk. Right. So, so there's an old principle of interviewing that I subscribe to, mm -hmm. which is that you don't want to hear their pre-arranged speech. Right. So if you're interviewing someone and they're likely to have arranged a speech, your first job is to prevent the speech. Right. <laughs> which means get them somewhere else in conversation space than where they've got a prepared speech. This is a great point. And so um, just jumping off to anything detailed and... Uh, you know, uh, interesting. Uh, can you help you find out about a person like that? Right. Getting in a category where there's actually some sort of room to adapt, learn, figure out versus right. things that are like right. So, so when they've got a thing and, and they, you know, they're going to start their thing off with a speech. Yeah. But 
you know, if, if very quickly, if you pick a point to probe on, a challenge or a question, right. you can very quickly move to a thing, point, place where they don't have a speech for that yet. Right. And, you know, instead of just saying, well, yeah, I don't know about that, you know, the more you put it, well, let's just dive into it. Let's just work on it together. Mm-hmm. Now you've got them off a of speech. Yes. But we're still thinking about something together here. Right. And you can see how they think on their feet. Right. And you can see whether they're knowledgeable, careful, creative, etc. Having them think on their feet about something they said it's important to them, they care about. I like this kind of... It involves a progression. I've always been fond of those moments where it's not uh, on autopilot because I've gotten any value from autopilot. Uh, it's almost like the... What's it called? The press reporter or something in the brain where it just says what is thought to be accurate. That's why I've liked, like I've done a little bit of uh, open mic comedy and then sometimes I won't even plan it beforehand or I'll connect with the audience because then it's happening right there versus something that... The audience could have been anybody. I mean, they could have not been there. It could have been a different audience and it would have had no difference. So it's not actually true to the moment in that way. Yeah. Hmm. Now, I mean, there, there is, I think people go overboard with this concept of authenticity mm-hmm. and, and that could be related to what we're talking about. I mean, so there is a sense in which people are often performing mm-hmm. and performing awkwardly and badly. <laughs> and then in which case you'd like to see they're more natural performances. Right. But there's also a sense in which everything we do is performance of some sort. Mm-hmm. And so there is not necessarily an authentic self. Right. But there is the self that, by, at least at this point in your life, comes most naturally. Mm-hmm. That may have been a construction of yourself over your lifetime, and you, you produced that self, mm-hmm. but that still may be the self we want to see. Right. It's a known version, if you will. Now... There are cells that are out there as described. You once had an article called Dear Young Eccentric, which was to an individual who's younger and maybe eccentric, and talking about some of the end of it, which is advantages of it, which is wonderful because there are some benefits. Maybe there's less cost to doing things that are eccentric than things that are uh, default, but they cost more. You could just go hiking instead of go to an expensive uh, club or go to a beach trip or something and you can get away with certain things have you met many young eccentrics and guided them in some form I, I've meet, I met a lot of young eccentrics yes mm-hmm. yeah. um, which is why I wrote that mm-hmm. over the years right. um, so part of it is I think that people often take being an eccentric as, as this identity mm-hmm. and then they feel compelled to be eccentric about everything they can't mm-hmm which is a bit self-defeating. Right. Um, so I think it makes more sense to, at least from the point of view of how other people see you, you know, think of yourself as having a limited budget for eccentricity. Right. And try it well. So, for example, um, if I'm going to be talking about weird ideas, mm-hmm. maybe I should dress normal. Right. <laughs> and talk normal or something because... Um, then um, maybe people will listen a bit to my weird ideas. Mm -hmm. They can only Um, take so much variation. Well, it's also just that a lot of variation is risky. Uh, So, so for example, I I worked associated with this company long ago called Xanadu. It was a pioneer in uh, the web before there was a World Wide Web. Mm -hmm. 
And uh, the people working there were eccentrics, clearly. And they somewhat had this norm of trying to be creative about everything. Mm -hmm. So they had to have unusual ways of orienting their monitor and the times of day to work and how they organized a meeting and who they hired as a manager and what location they had their offices right. and what the logo was from there. They just had to be creative about everything. Everything. Well, the problem with that is that, you know, for most big processes, you, you they have a lot of parts. And if any one part goes badly wrong, uh, it can take down the whole thing. Mm -hmm. And so... Honestly, the way to give an innovation its best chance mm -hmm. is to include that innovation in a system where the other components are choked conservatively. Right. Right. If you've got a new idea for a, an automobile engine, right. well, just put it in an ordinary automobile. Right. Don't put it in an automobile where you've got an innovative brake, and an innovative headlight, and an innovative steering wheel, and mm -hmm. tires, and everything else. Right. Because now, you know, if the tires go wrong and you won't get a chance to see if your engine's a good idea. Right. You want to just... So so honestly, uh, there are many groups and people out there that who just have to be creative about anything and probably a good place to go look for ideas. <laughs> but then go try those ideas out on some other team mm -hmm. which has the norm of having one big risk we're taking and everything else is going to be more conventional. Right. You want to like split, <laughs> split yeah. tests on a specific point? So, so similarly in your life, um, you know, you can have a lot of ideas for contrary views you hold, but for any one project you pick, you might still have one or two elements that are creative and, and innovative and the rest of it pretty conservative mm -hmm. so that you can give those one or two elements the best chance of, of succeeding. Right. If everything is variation, then you just have like a add noise on Photoshop where it's a bunch of. Well, just nothing. It's just not going to work. The chances right. it works, and if you've made everything be a random, a innovative variation, is is very low. Right. Some, you know, one or maybe a dozen things are going to go wrong, mm -hmm. and you're just not going to have a chance. Entropy is too high. Too high. Right. So, so if you're going to be a creative person, then you can think about, well, I, I'm I'm creative in my topic. I'm creative in my method. I'm creative in my, you know, style. Just there's going to be something I'm going to take a chance on that, that I'm going to do different, but mm -hmm. you know, keep that limited. Right. That's a great point. One, one thing now completely separate from this. Well, actually no, this one not yet completely separate because we have an example of someone who's somewhat eccentric, but also viewed in a similar way. Edward Snowden, you once had an article Snowden described the hero like, and that you liked some of his features. I also pointed that out. I once made a list of like 10 people. I, find notable or connect with and he was on there because of his risk taking uh he stood for something do you see many people who are uh, standing for something in that way and you still like uh what he had done well i mean the basic fact is that the vast majority of people out there in the world who do something good for the world right don't do it in a very visible way mm -hmm. and even if some of what they do is visible the rest of us can't really see the rest of what's going on to know how much credit to give them. Mm -hmm. And so this is a very basic point about the world, which is that we often or even mostly have to choose between credit and influence. Credit and influence. I have a, a blog post with those two words in the title, I think. Mm -hmm. Between credit and influence. <laughs> that is, uh, so in many organizations, for example, um, oh, yeah. you know, people, people will steal your ideas. And if you want them just to happen, that'd be your win. Right. 
But if you want to get credit for them, well, then a lot more people will oppose you because uh, they want credit too. Right. And, uh, and, you know, to do something in a way that a wide world can see and give you clear credit for having done a good thing, that's just uh, much harder to do than just to do a thing that helps the world. Oh, yeah. I, I've got this also concept called marginal charity mm-hmm. to uh, elaborate the point, mm-hmm. which is that um, anytime we make any decision on some parameter, some parameter X, mm-hmm. uh, the optimal value of X for our selfish choices uh, is is one number. And then we might think, well, say I don't make my best selfish choice. Maybe I try to help the world a bit by adjusting X just a little bit. Mm-hmm. Well, near the optimal X for me, adjusting X a little bit is extremely cheap for me. Mm-hmm. So the ratio of the benefit to the world to the cost to me, it goes to infinity right. as we go to this optimal point. Mm-hmm. And so this means that, uh, you know, in terms of cost effectiveness, terms, the most cost effective things you can possibly do for the world are going to be adjust your selfish behavior a little bit in the direction of what helps the world. Right. It's not visible. If what you want is credit for being generous to the world, uh, you can't get it this way because, you know, you could lie right. and, and say that the thing you're doing is helping the world a bit. But in fact, that's exactly your selfish optimal choice. And, and there's just not much of a way you're going to be able to show somebody that, in fact, you've moved uh, your choice a bit away from your selfish optimal choice to something that helps the world because they're mm-hmm. both going to be so close together. And somebody else who looks just like you, for them, that could have been the optimal selfish choice. Right. So it's another example of how you may have to choose between credit and influence. Right. Uh, there's this extremely cost-effective way to help the world, mm-hmm. which is just to adjust your choices in the direction of what helps the world. Mm-hmm. But you can't get much credit for it. Right. If you want to do something that the world will give you credit for, you have to find a way to do the, one of these very distinct, visible things. So, so Snowden, mm-hmm. you know, found a way to do a very visible thing. Right. And get credit for it. And it's a thing that was very expensive, but it was a discrete thing. It's not like he could adjust what he did in a slight direction. Right. You know, revealing a lot of information like that was is kind of a discrete action. You just had to do it all at once in a big lump. Mm-hmm. That's true. So, but, you know, in that post I said, you know, from what I could tell, he seemed to be, you know, um, following all the norms of good behavior that I could think of. Right. In, in the context of how he made that choice. Right. It could have been way more extreme. Right. I mean, you know, uh, he, he you could complain to some degree that maybe he should make some slight variations, but I find it hard to criticize that much in the sense that uh, I, I, I'm sure I wouldn't have known enough to, to do the careful things he did. Mm-hmm. And mo- probably most of us wouldn't. Right. So, uh, he, he, he knew enough to be careful in, in, in a lot of ways. The rest of us couldn't be careful if there were further more ways that he could have been careful that he wasn't i don't feel like criticizing him for that right it seems <laughs> like a... it's so far beyond what the rest of us could handle mostly that uh i gotta just give it to him say good job <laughs> right <laughs> yeah it was very meticulous organized there wasn't many loopholes he thought about many details because it was a large thing in his existence and there is something to that yeah that's true i mean i've heard the complaint that you know he should have been more selective about what he released mm-hmm. uh but, but th- that that seem to require a lot of knowledge right a lot of judgment to make those choices well mm-hmm. what, uh, coming i'm through not sure how, how, how many of us would really be in a place to make do that well very few yeah almost nobody i think because it's a lot of material and you'd have to go through it in detail yeah now completely but larger scale because i like to look at things broadly i noticed you look at things broadly too which is 
it's 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 like a made of view of things the great filter i have read this and i noted it about how we have our earth and then we have all the dead space around us and the likelihood that that represents us being able to expand far is low based on that i I thought it was very interesting i never thought of that but it makes sense like it would have either gotten to us or we would have gotten out yeah so i noticed it a long time ago as a neglected topic which it is Mm -hmm. still is somewhat neglected Mm -hmm. it doesn't fit naturally into any of our standard academic disciplines there's nobody who's like owns the topic so it gets neglected uh Mm-hmm. There's a limited number of things you can say about it. I mean, even today, there are people working on it a bit and, and adding new observations to it. But mm-hmm. uh, it's, it's not an overwhelmingly topic in the sense that you know we shouldn't necessarily have thousands of pe- more pe- times more people working on it. But um, clearly, it's a very basic, important topic. Uh, once you're, you know, the universe looks dead, mm-hmm. and that's not necessarily what you should have predicted. Right. That's surprising that the universe looks dead because when we look at our future trajectory, we seem to think we see a, a substantial chance that we could go out there and make it look not dead. Mm-hmm. And yet, there it is dead. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> From all, you know, all the other potential things like us that could have made it look not dead right. have failed. <laughs> so how is it that all of them have failed? Right. Uh, that's the great filter question. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, you know, that was a way of, you know, lots of people had, you know, noticed that aliens aren't here and that sort of thing. I, I just think I did a, a slight reframing of the question uh, in terms of the great filters so that I could talk about the filter up to now and the filter after now. Right. And how finding evidence for life out there, evidence that um, the filter before now was easier, which then makes the filter after now more likely to be harder. Right. Which is bad news for us. Right. So that that one of my original observations there. So, you know, again, the, the I gave the name Great Filter, and I get some credit for just having that name, but, you know, I don't think you should get too much credit for naming something with a new name after <laughs> that people mm-hmm. had already been talking about. Right. But I think I had a little originality in having this idea of the filter before us and the filter after us. Mm-hmm. And I also had this uh, other statistical analysis about um, the time durations of steps in our history. Uh, so... Um, if we are past some filter steps, then mm-hmm. there's the question when they happened in our history. Mm-hmm. And there's a statistical analysis that would say uh, if if you know life was very unlikely to get all the way to where we are in the history of life on Earth, um, because there were so many planets that tried it, and most uh, all, almost all of them failed, and only a few ever succeeded, mm-hmm. that's a selection effect on this history. I show it has its implication <clears throat> that even if there were different steps that had different difficulties above a certain difficulty level, they would be spread out roughly evenly in time. Mm-hmm. So we would roughly see a sequence of steps in history that were roughly equally spaced. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and that's a prediction that helps us understand our history in terms of which things in the past could have been hard steps. Right. And basically says... Probably nothing in the last half billion years was. Right. Because it's too quick. It's too quick. Because roughly a half billion years ago was a plausible hard step, mm-hmm. although not obviously where, where multicellular life really got going. Mm-hmm. And, uh, anyway, so the, there's, a, there's a few other interesting things to say. I mean, I, I should say that the obvious, most likely answer is that most of the filter was at the very beginning. 
that is just getting life going at all was really, really hard. Right. And if that's true, then that means that most of the steps after that weren't very hard and that our future isn't very hard. And that's a nice optimistic scenario, which is fine. Mm-hmm. And it's fine to, to say the most scenario is the most optimistic one, but you should then pause and say, how sure can I be of that? Mm-hmm. And if you can't be really sure, you should admit, well, then there's this chance there's a filter ahead of us, right? And so you should worry about that. Right. I wonder what evidence we could have of where it might be and, and what it, form it might take and you know what, what we could do about it. Mm-hmm. I look at that sometimes. It's not that far off in some ways from you look at something and the way it looks to have gone is the trend. Or if a person had a certain way they were you don't expect it to just alter from nothing i don't know if this is exactly but i kind of look at it like that like the trends that you see represent what is yeah well now on a separate category there um this one i find interesting because we have talked about it a few times the signals and noise you have done some work in signaling is it related to the noise to signal ratio or what do you look at in signaling that is important? So elephant in the brain book is right. much about signaling in that a lot or even most or even almost all of what we do mm-hmm. is done with a big eye toward how it makes us look. Right. Uh, so we think a lot about how what we do will make us look to other people mm-hmm. and we choose what we do a lot on the basis of you know, wanting to look good and not wanting to look bad. Right. Um, that's signaling. Mm-hmm. Um, but we also don't want to look like we are trying very hard <laughs> to look good. Right. That looks bad. Right. So we are simultaneously trying not to look bad and trying not to look like we're trying not to look bad. Right. A big effort. <laughs> Which gets uh, difficulties. And so... Um, this means that there are cases where noise is our friend in signaling mm-hmm. uh, because lack of clarity helps sometimes. Um, mm-hmm. So we want to signal what we want to plausibly deny that we're doing it. Uh, we want to look good in many ways that we would want to admit that we're trying to look good. Right. So, for example, flirting, we're often illicitly flirting or in a relationship, say, we're not supposed to be flirting. Mm-hmm. And the other person is in our ship, and we know that, and so we're not supposed to be flirting, but we still flirt. Mm-hmm. And flirting is signaling, uh, it's showing availability and interest and qualities, um, but you're not supposed to be doing that. And so we like to signal, i.e. flirt, in ways that allow us to deny that we were doing it if accused. Mm-hmm. It comes with that. And so that's one of many examples of how we signal but don't want to admit it and therefore try to bury our signal within some noise so that if somebody was trying to show somebody else that we were signaling, they couldn't do it very well. Right. You know, I I thought about that also. The prediction markets, I was looking at a few examples of that, and then it made me think of, are these signals telling us just through prediction what is to occur? It's like a crowdsourcing on the way to a decision already there. Right, so a, decision, a, a prediction market can help us all come together to make predictions 
mm-hmm. and a decision market's a variation where we can advise about the consequences of a particular decision. Mm-hmm. And prediction markets are basically betting markets, um, w- often with anonymous participation. And so prediction markets do give good to be honest and to say what we really think about uh, a prediction or a decision. And that's their problem. Oh. Uh, because that um, isn't what people often want, even if right. they pretend to want it. <laughs> right. Uh, so so um, often say we hire advisors or we ask for advice uh, in a context where we kind of hint enough to the advisors that we don't really want an honest answer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's why we're willing to get the advice uh, because they kind of get that uh, what kind of answer we're looking for. Mm-hmm. But a prediction market cuts through that. Right. It creates these direct incentives for people to tell really what they think. Mm-hmm. And that means the output of a prediction market is, is more reliable and accurate, but also less filtered by what you're supposed to say. Right. So, you know, having a prediction market in an organization is like having uh, an autist as, as a C-level executive. <laughs> Right. So you can imagine an organization with a C-level executive who is very knowledgeable and informed about the organization and its priorities, but has no political filter. Right. They just Filter's say whatever pops into their head, mm-hmm. and uh, no matter who it might embarrass, no matter whose ox it might gore, no matter what you know official agenda it might uh, contradict. Mm-hmm. And I think it's pretty safe to predict that a C-level executive like that won't last very long. Right. They're not doing that. The, orga- the organization will find some other place for them. Maybe they won't fire them completely, but they will put them in a place that get the information out of them without producing this disruptive uh, set of speech acts, which, you know, bother people. It would be too direct. And that's a problem prediction markets have in organizations, is that people have found that they um, don't like to hear such direct, accurate answers. Mm-hmm. It skips the filter. Yeah. I think uh, those who are able to more handle direct material, they have less version to conflict, whereas those that uh, prefer filtered material, they have more aversion to conflict, so they do not want to be directly competing or battling with others. Right. Well, you you might think that, um, you know, in a world where some people are more tough and thick-skinned than others, that... Mm -hmm. uh, the tough, thick-skinned people would be the one asking other people to tell them just like it is. Right. And they would look better and people would respect them more and that would be a pressure on everybody to be tough and thick-skinned and ask for things just like it is. Mm-hmm. Connect with reality. However, <laughs> that's not the way the world actually is. Mm-hmm. So uh, an obvious conclusion is just there are very few people who actually are willing to, um, to have people tell them how it is. Mm-hmm. That's just, uh, not a very common thing. Right. Almost everybody pretends to be like those people, at least in some modes, mm-hmm. but isn't that. Right. So we're not in a world where there are very hard. There are very many of these people who just want you to tell them like it is. Mm-hmm. We're in a world with a lot of people who pretend that they they say that's what they want. Yes. But as soon as they start actually getting it, they even if they didn't know before, they realize then no, that's not what they want. Right. This is very true. You get a lot of resistance when actual reality is presented, and you're like, oh, wait a minute, you didn't actually want reality at that time. And, that, and that's, a, in a sense, a theme of our book, The Elephant in the Brain. Mm-hmm. And it's a, a reaction that people had to the book. Um, not necessarily that surprising, but um, people right. might think they want to know their and others' hidden motives. Mm-hmm. 
and they might find out that once they've learned what hidden motives are, they didn't like learning that. <laughs> it's not as pretty as they hoped. It's too discouraging. It's too uh, much of a downer. And, mm-hmm. and unfortunately, a lot of people are tempted to take our book as a self-help book. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, obviously most of us think that we have good motives and that we, our motives are, are virtuous and, and the sort that we would be willing to admit to even if other people don't. Mm-hmm. And when we find out otherwise, uh, one reaction is to try to stop that. Right. To try to change and reform so that we no longer have these motives that we disapprove of. <laughs> and that just doesn't go well. Right. These are just way too deeply embedded and too uh, around too long and too much a center of who we are mm-hmm. to be that easy to change. So we generally recommend our book not as a self-help book, but as a way to understand the world. Right. Informational. I've noticed uh, But that. still people are, are, and people might even admit that, but somehow in the back of their mind they think, that's because I don't really have these problems. Right. <laughs> and they're wrong. <laughs> right. It shows. And then, yes, I've noticed those times when many, uh, many an individual, it, it'll look funny from my perspective, sort of, but it'll seem like they're saying they're not a thing, well, you know they're the thing, and then they return to that, and you wonder what was the point of the not being direct in the first place, and then you realize uh, they couldn't confront that part of themselves, so they kind of keep pushing it away. It's like a cycle that they do to themselves. Right, and it's the sort of thing you should just expect to continue. Right. <laughs> it, it, it's not like make humanity suddenly change about right, these right, things. Right, right, right. Uh, so, so you shouldn't expect to reform yourself a lot or your friends a lot right, right. by knowing hidden motives, but you should be able to just understand the world or understand the nature of school, the nature of politics, the nature of medicine, and understand what's really going on in these major human institutions. Right. That's a feasible thing that you can hope to get out of thinking about hidden motives. Right. Yes. I value that understanding a lot because then it helps me better manage uh, what I'm interacting with or I'm connecting. Yeah. That's a wonderful feature. There, I will close up this wonderful interview on not only your blog, but the book that I've talked about in episodes, which is wonderful, and uh, a few people have gotten it because of that. And uh, yes, I highly appreciate you being on this episode number 202 of the show. Well, thanks so much for having me. This is great. And we are out.